desire to turn our attention to God's Word, and we are in Daniel chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible but would like to follow along, you can find one that looks just like this from under one of the chairs in front of you, and you will find our passage on page 742 today. 742 will be in Daniel chapter 5. This passage really, although there are lots of characters involved, there's lots of history, there's lots of information going on, at the end of the day, this passage is about God himself. And in fact, when we see who God is in this passage, we will not, un- not only understand God better, but we will come to understand ourselves better in light of him. In fact, this is very much how the Bible presents God. The more that we come to see and understand who God is, the more clearly we will come to see and understand who we are in light of Him. But the question before us, and that is, will we like what we see? Will we like the picture of God that is given to us here, what God tells us about Himself, and in doing so, what we find about our own lives? Will we like what we see, as it were, in the spiritual mirror reflected back from the text of Scripture? At the end of the day, what I hope we will, we will come to is not only a rejoicing in the God that is presented here, but a turning towards Him in faith. That's our task this morning. Let's begin that task by looking at Daniel chapter 5. I invite you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. May God bless the reading of his word. As we seek to see God, to understand him more clearly and so ourselves more clearly, we see three things uh, from the entirety of the chapter, but these first verses launch us into the first thing that we're going to see, and that is this. Every sin is revealed by the one true God. Every sin is revealed by the true God. If you've been here for our series in Daniel, or if you have read through Daniel before, you know this chapter kind of opens in an abrupt way. Um, Chapter 4 just ended with another king, and a display of this glorious scene of him repenting and turning towards God in faith, having been humbled uh, by God. And all of a sudden, there's no more talk of Nebuchadnezzar. There's just this new uh, king that is uh, presented to us, this man named Belshazzar. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? At first glance, it may seem like he's related to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. After all, he's called Belshazzar's father in our text. The problem, though, is that that word father doesn't necessarily mean biological father. It can also mean grandfather. It can mean even predecessor. Now, that shouldn't sound all that strange to us because we have this way of talking in our own context, don't we? We talk about the founding fathers of our country, but I doubt if any of us are even remotely related to them, even in an indirect way. And likewise, what we have going on here is uh, Belshazzar, who is not in fact the son of Nebuchadnezzar, but rather uh, King Nabonidus, who was the third king to reign after Nebuchadnezzar. So we have here a a long gap between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And Nabonidus wasn't the best king of Babylon, Belshazzar's father. 
First of all, he valued some of the minor gods of Babylon, uh, the many that were in their pantheon, and therefore he spent much of his time as king away from the capital seeking to rebuild and to glorify the cities, the temples of these minor gods. In fact, he spent so much time away, though he was king, he left Belshazzar in rule of Babylon in his place. Secondly, and more immediately and more important to our context, Nabonidus has just lost a major battle. In fact, he has had to flee the city of Sippar, just 50 miles north of Babylon where this feast has taken place because the Persians have taken the task. They've schooled him in warfare. And now uh, this whole city of Babylon is wondering, are we next? Because the Persian army didn't stop at Sippar. They have come down and they are practically at the city gates of Babylon. Thus, this party is about more than just having fun. Belshazzar is is not just throwing a party for the thousand of his closest friends, if we can talk that way. He's also making a statement. He is reveling in the fact that Babylon has been called up to this point the unconquerable city. The city's never been taken. It's been laid siege to before. People have tried, and yet they have always stood victorious. And so now, with his father on the run... Uh, He is in some ways the de facto king. It's only a matter of time before the dad is probably caught and killed and executed and he is king. And more than that, now he is celebrating, even in the face of a deadly enemy, the fact that this is going to be another day of victory for me. Uh, They will lay siege to this city and we will remain victorious on the other side. Therefore, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will be alive. Yet in reality... In reality, that is not what is going to come. And in fact, he tries to exalt himself like the ancient king Nebuchadnezzar by associating himself with him, by celebrating a victory that Nebuchadnezzar won over Jerusalem many years ago and brought Babylon to prominence in the world. And here is where our chapter begins with this transition between Nebuchadnezzar who was proud and who was humbled by God and who gave God the glory and by another king who was in need of humbling. If you just look back to the very last verse of chapter 4, you see this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. That's the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. He had been humbled by the high king of heaven. And now chapter 5 begins with another king who is in need of humbling. He is a proud man who needs to come to grips with the reality of the high king of heaven. Belshazzar has thrown this party. Notice what he does when he tastes the wine. He commands the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Again, on what he perceives to be the eve of a great victory in turning away the Persian army, Belshazzar decides to celebrate another victory from the past. He says, bring in the spoils of war that my, but my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, won from Jerusalem. When he destroyed the city, he leveled the temple, and he brought their treasured items out of there. Let us celebrate and rejoice in our gods using the instruments of their god. In doing so, he doesn't just denigrate Israel's God, whom Nebuchadnezzar knew as the high king of heaven. It's a double indignity by feasting on those vessels in the praise of his own God. Verse 4, again, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, 
and stone. Though Nebuchadnezzar had come to see the vanity of worshiping those gods, the fact that they brought him nothing in contrast to worshiping the one true God who reigned in glory above all people, Belshazzar was unwilling to see that glory. And so it is with every sin. Even today, every sin is in some way idolatry, a rejection of the one true God in favor of something else. When we sin, it is a direct sin against God. If we steal, it's because we don't trust God to give us the things that we need. We think he is stingy and we need something more. If we try to escape from reality, the reality of our problems through something like drugs or alcohol or food or porn, it's because we don't believe God is good in the midst of our problems. Therefore, what we steal or what we indulge in become our idols. They become our functional saviors, our functional gods, man-made objects to give us what we want. Therefore, we worship them and we delight in them. Yet all the while, we are distancing ourselves from the one true God. We are taking things made of gold and silver and wood and stone and anything else and bowing down to them in our hearts when the God of the universe, the God who spoke and entire galaxies leaped into existence is saying, come and worship me, have a relationship with me. In our foolishness, we say, you're not good enough for us. We were created to know him, to be in relationship with him, but our sin keeps us far from him. More than that, it robs him of glory. After all, how glorious can God really look when we choose a phone or money or dirty magazines over him? God desires for us to know him, yet he will not allow his glory to be tarnished forever. This was made powerfully evident in Belshazzar's life. He is whining and dying, dining. He is making merry with the holy vessels of God's temple. And in verse 5, we read this. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the full third ruler in the kingdom. Then all of the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed and his lords were perplexed. And to be fair, you can't blame the guy for being scared, can you? I mean, one minute you're having this party, you're half sloshed, if not totally poleaxed, and the next thing you know, this, this human hand, this ethereal, this, this ethereal finger comes out of nowhere, hangs mistfully in the air, and begins burning words that you cannot understand or know the meaning to into your wall. So no surprise, the color drains from his face, and he goes weak in the knees. Literally, it means, uh, the, the text says, his loins stopped working. He literally could not even get up from the table. He was so shaken by what he saw. And again, the worst part is, you don't know what this means. What are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to respond? He doesn't know. And so he calls for all of his advisors, and they don't know either. Then we read, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. That's verse 10. Now let's stop here again, because again, we have a slight difficulty with the wording. The word for queen doesn't necessarily mean his wife. 
After all, we've just saw that his wives and his concubines are already at the party. So who is this person who then comes in? Well, the word can also mean something like queen mother. So even though, again, modern day, you had a queen of England, her mom uh, was still alive, and therefore she was referred to as uh, the queen mother. And that seems a better understanding considering Belshazzar's wives and concubines were already in the palace. Why wouldn't the queen have been there? But more than that, notice how she treats Belshazzar. It's almost with contempt. I think it is the queen mother. I think it is one of Nebuchadnezzar's wives, the queen who is still alive in her old age, taken care of at the temple, and she sees what's going on, and yet she has disdain for Belshazzar. Because he is nothing like her husband, Nebuchadnezzar. And so she comes in, and in verse 10 says this. The queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, who the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. He, the, the, the implicit, you don't measure up language that is here from this queen mother. Apparently, for whatever reason, Daniel has fallen out of favor. He's not even on the guest list, let alone one of the people called in to advise. And yet here, here, Nebuchadnezzar is shown to have displayed more wisdom and sense than Belshazzar. Because he saw and recognized the wisdom of God in Daniel. And therefore, listened to him and took his advice. It, it, advice. It's another unveiling of Belshazzar's folly and sin. And as much as he might appear sinful and foolish to us, again, we're no different. We are no different. We have our own foolish decisions that we make. We have our own lack of wisdom that we portray to everybody and are, and are not seeking the counsel of God or heeding it for our lives. And either in this life or the next, our own folly and our own sin will be revealed. It will be revealed either in the, the, the consequences of our foolishness and our sin or it will be revealed when God himself returns as a judge of all things, holds us accountable for what we have done. Whether in this life or in the life to come, our idols will be displayed for all to see. And they will, they will be revealed for what they are. Man-made gods who have no power to save. No power to make us right with the one true God. That's the first thing we see about God in this text that every sin is revealed by him because he is the one true God and every sin is against him as the one true God. But secondly, we also see that every heart is weighed by the righteous judge. Every heart is weighed by him who is the righteous judge. Picking up where we left off, then Daniel was brought in before the king. This is verse 13. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel? One of the exiles of Judah whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. You notice how Belshazzar is distancing himself from Daniel. It's like he's doing Daniel a favor by bringing him into the courts. You're this guy that, that, that we brought in as, as a captive years ago, decades ago. Verse 14. I've heard of you. But the spirit of the gods is in you. And that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they cannot show the interpretation of the matter. 
But I have heard that you can give the interpretation and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a gold chain around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Anyone who interpreted the writing would be clothed with purple, would wear a gold chain, we made the third rule in the kingdom. Purple was uh, famously expensive, an expensive color in the ancient world. And a chain of gold was always the, the mark of high rank. You were high up in society. So essentially, Belshazzar, if we were to speak in modern terms, is saying, look, my best Armani suit and a new gold Rolex is yours if you can interpret the dream. Symbols of status and power in our world But more than that he would give him the power to go along with it You will be the third highest ruler Again why the third highest Because Belshazzar is only the second highest Though he sits on the throne in Babylon He does so in place of his dad Nabonidus So Belshazzar has heeded the advice of the queen mother And he brings in Daniel And Daniel couldn't care less about the things That is offered to him Look at verse 17 Daniel answered and said before the king let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are your, all your ways, you have not honored. Daniel walks in like some ghost from the past. Understand, he is at this point a senior saint, as we would say. It's been decades, decades since he was first taken captive by the Babylonians. He is an old man pushing uh, 80 at this point in the narrative. I cannot imagine he was sleeping nicely in his room before he was told at this late hour, come to this big party because the king needs you. A king who up to this point had had nothing to do with Daniel. Furthermore, he comes in and could care less about the fame and the fortune being offered to him. Why? Because in his advanced age of daily walking with the Lord, he could see past the vanity of such things that so many value in this life. And he says, what am I going to do with that? Who cares? If I have the purple road, who cares if I have the gold thing and then the third highest? Those things don't matter because what matters is whether or not God is honored. That's the perspective that he brings. Nevertheless, he does what the king asks him to do. He tells the king what the dream means. He begins by explaining why all of this has come to him, or the vision means, uh, why all this has come to him in the first place. And it's simply this, he didn't learn from the past. 
He likes Nebuchadnezzar so much because he's a great king. He wants to be associated with him. But he learned nothing from what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He learned nothing from what Nebuchadnezzar learned. Daniel says, you knew what happened. He says, you were alive. You saw the insanity that overtook Nebuchadnezzar. How he ran out into the woods and ate grass and lived like an animal out there and slept out there. And how after seven years, God gave him his sense back. And Nebuchadnezzar said, there is one true God who reigns over everything. And anyone, whether high in stature or low in stature, has been given that position by this most high God. Therefore, he, desire, he, he deserves to be honored and worshipped. He says, Belshazzar, you saw all of that. And yet rather than learn from Nebuchadnezzar, you turned away. You turned away and you made yourself proud before that same God. You lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You intentionally and brazenly dishonored him, seeking to honor yourself instead. Therefore, he says in verse 24, from his presence, that is God's presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Daniel read and interpreted the writing, many, many, tekel, parson. The words form a sequence of monetary weights in the ancient world, decreasing in value from a mina to a shekel to a half shekel. But Daniel interprets the words uh, as verbs. And therefore the sequence becomes numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. And he says, the Lord has numbered the days of Belshazzar's kingdom and he is about to bring it to an end. Why? Because he has been weighed. The value of his heart, his soul has been measured and he has been found wanting. The divine judge has weighed the value of Belshazzar's heart and it didn't measure up. He had been entrusted with much and has been graciously shown the power of God through his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar. But he has wasted all of these things. Rather than serve his people, he has served himself. Rather than honor God, humbly, he has exalted himself proudly. Therefore, the level, the judgment leveled against him, a removal of the kingdom from him, is exactly what the measure of his heart deserved. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. We hear those words and we shouldn't just think of Belshazzar, we should think of ourselves. We should wonder, as the righteous judge of all peoples weighs the hearts on the final day, what will be the verdict for me? How will my life stand up to what God has decreed, to the level and the measurement, the standard that he has set for all people? Will judgment fall on me or will I escape? The last thing that we say about God and therefore revealing something about ourselves is this. Every life is established by the sovereign king. Every life is established by the sovereign king. Earlier we said that Babylon was known as the unconquerable city. Why is that? Well, in the ancient days, you conquered a city by doing one of three things. Number one, you either went over the wall, into the city, attacked its people, and won the day. Or you went through the wall, attacked the city, conquered the people, and won the day. Or... You starved them out. 
You surrounded the city and cut off their food and water supply, and eventually they would have to yield because their people were dropping in the streets. You couldn't do any of those things to Babylon. Why? Because of the way the city was built. The city was 14 square miles in size. It was surrounded by walls that were 87 feet thick and 350 feet high. That's the equivalent of a 35-story building. Nobody's going over that wall, and nobody's going through it. Furthermore, the city was built in such a way that the Euphrates River literally ran through the center of town. There was a great bridgeway that went over connecting the two sides of the city. So there was an immediate and uh, uh, provision of water, not only to drink, but for the crops, the small farms that were raised, that raised food right in the middle of the city. And so therefore Babylon can never be conquered. No one could go over the wall, no one could go through the wall, and no one could cut off the food supply. This is why the news that Daniel brings, that his kingdom is about to fall, that it will be taken from Belshazzar, it leaves him completely unfazed. It's like he's like, well, that's an interpretation, but I don't find it a credible one. Verse 29, Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold put around his neck, and a proclamation about him was made that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Notice that even after the dreadful judgment pronounced by Daniel, the king continues on as if nothing is wrong. It's amazing because think about what he saw. The hand writing judgment into the wall. It terrified him and he was desperate to hear its meaning. But then when he heard the meaning, he doesn't believe it. Why? Because he doesn't like it. This is the great folly of humanity. We hear a message from God. And because we don't like what the message says, we choose not to believe it. So the party goes on. Daniel is given his reward and no action whatsoever is taken against the impending doom that is coming. We know from the Greek historian Xenophon that just about everybody in the city, not just the thousand that were here, but everybody in the city was bombed. They were drunk. The wine had flowed freely from the throne to the guardhouse so that there were actually no watchmen posted anywhere around the city. All of the guards were basically given the night off and they were all polexed out in the streets and in their homes. In fact, it was the hubris of the party and the lack of guards and alertness that caused Cyrus, the, the great Persian general, to advance on the city that very night. Brilliant as he was under the providential hand of God, he discovered an old, disused canal. And he ordered his men to labor through the night to divert the Euphrates River instead of going through the city to bypass it through this canal. And they simply slipped in where the river usually went through. What was the result? Verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The judgment promised by God came to pass. The man whose heart who had been, that had been weighed and found wanting received the judgment that was due him. And friends, the same will happen to every single man, woman, and child in this world. As much as we want to be, we are not the masters of our fate. We are not the captain of the ships of our life. There is a sovereign king who stands over every one of us, determining the number of our days from the least to the greatest of us. 
every rise and fall of every corporation and political state, to every rise and fall of every grocery store manager and stay-at-home mom. Every numbering of days of life comes by the hand of a sovereign king, God himself. All are given their lot by his all-wise, all-powerful decree. And so this morning we have to stand back and we have to ask ourselves, what is my life before this great king? When he sees me, what does he see? It doesn't matter what I see when I look at myself. It doesn't matter how I think of myself. What does the sovereign king, the righteous judge, the one true God, what does he think? What does he see when he looks at my life? We've seen that every sin is revealed by him. Every heart is weighed by him. Every life is established by him. This isn't just about Belshazzar. It's about us as well. It's about every human being who has ever lived. And this fall of a great king and the destruction of a great city, the Bible says we see a picture of the future. Babylon fell. For all of its glory, it was all for nothing. It felt like every other nation has fallen or eventually will fall. It was defeated. But more than that, Babylon takes on a symbolism. Because of its vanity, because of its pride, because of its sin, it takes on a symbolism that stands for all of the wickedness of humanity. Historic Babylon becomes symbolic spiritual Babylon in the story of the Bible. So that any time, any body, any culture, anything would raise up against God in pride, the Bible calls it Babylon. Babylon. And when you read the end of the Bible, in the final chapters of Revelation, you see that this spiritual Babylon, all who would rebel against God, will also fall just like this city. Revelation 18, John the Apostle says, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! Then God says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. A final, eternal judgment is coming against all sin in this world. But unlike Belshazzar, this foolish king filled with pride, offering a foolish banquet in the face of this judgment, in the face of impending death and destruction, there is another king, Christ the King, and he offers a far different banquet, a banquet of salvation from sins. Again, we read in Revelation John says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult in Him, giving Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. What is this about? This is called the marriage celebration and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here, here, such is the love of Christ the King for His people that they are pictured as a beautiful bride loved and adored by her husband, Christ. Here they are pictured as, as if the joy of a wedding reception has come, rejoicing the love that has been pledged and now fulfilled, a love that brings salvation from the coming judgment against sin. So the simple question that needs to be asked is this. Are you, are you among God's people, the bride of Christ, or are you among the citizens of Babylon? Will the judge 
the judge's return, to bring judgment on sin, will it cause you to tremble like Belshazzar? Or will it cause you to weep with joy like a bride on her wedding day? How, how, how are you waiting for Christ when he comes? Just this week there was a terrible disaster on the slopes of Mount Everest. A handful of people were killed in their desire to attempt to climb it because of the storms. As we were talking a little bit about that, Melinda and I often at night will share interesting news stories that we read throughout the day. And she told me of one news story related to Everest. It was about a young Israeli man named Nadav ben Yehuda, who was able, who was about rather, to reach the top, earning himself the distinction of being the youngest Israeli to reach the peak of Mount Everest. He was on his way when he came across another climber who was sick and dying in the snow. The man was out of oxygen. He had no gloves. He was barely alive. But more than that, as the young Israeli looked closely at him, he realized this was a man he knew. A Turk that he had, been, he had befriended just days before down at their base camp. So picture this, the situation. Here is this young man, this young climber. He is within clear view of the top of Everest. He is just 985 feet from reaching his goal, reaching the summit, and therefore becoming not just a man who fulfilled a lifelong dream, but, but going down in the history books as the youngest Israeli to ever reach the top. But instead he turns. He turns and he picks up this older man. He begins carrying him back down the mountain to base camp for nine hours. Melinda was telling me this. My eyes were welling up with tears at the common grace that is displayed in this image. But then, but then my countenance changed when she told me at the end of the article, he said this. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that if I had come across anybody else in that same situation, oxygen, no gloves, half dead, I'm not sure I would have stopped if I didn't know them. The heart of true humanity is revealed in that statement. Here is a man who values a fairly mundane accomplishment in terms of world history, climbing to the top of a mountain as more valuable than the life of another human being created in the image of God. Friends, today there is another young Israeli man who has existed from before the creation of the world, Jesus Christ, and he will never, never leave anyone behind on the slopes of their sin as they await death and judgment. He says, anyone who would come to me, anyone who would turn away from their sin, anyone who would humble themselves and say, I desire to know the one true God, I desire to find forgiveness of my sins, he will not turn away. And he's already proven it by dying for them in their place. This is what the cross is all about. Jesus Christ came. He was God in the flesh. And he, gave, he set aside his glory. He willingly humbled himself to die and take the judgment that we deserve for our sins. And raising gloriously back to life, he is now the, the sovereign king who has authority over all things. Therefore, Therefore, he is the one who can say, come to me and find forgiveness for your sins. Come to me and embrace the reason for which you were made to know me, to love me, to be gloried even as I am glorified in your faith. He will free you from the idolatry of your heart. He will free you from the vanity of life. He will free you from your sins and the judgment that is to come. Because of the power of his life, death, 
and resurrection for sinners. All that is left for us to do is to look to Him, to look to Christ, to trust Him, and to believe that He is the provision God, the Father, God the Judge, has sent that sinners might be forgiven of their sins and may write with Him. Therefore, this morning, when you see the glory of God in His sovereign reign, when you see the glory of Him who judges sin and the one who deserves the worst of our lives of the one true God, we should see our lives do not measure up to His. Our lives will never and can never measure up to the standard of righteousness and holiness and beauty and glory that is God's, and therefore we deserve judgment, and yet He has made provision. He has offered His own Son that we might escape that judgment we deserve, that we might know Him and be known by Him. All you must do is look to Him in faith. And loved ones, those of you that are Christians who have done this, do you continue to trust Him? Do you continue to look at Him? The question you must ask yourself today is this. The the King is returning. Christ is coming again. And what will you be doing between now and then? Will you be frittering away your time in meaningless drivel, wasting hours and days and months and years when you could have been serving your King? Or by faith will you devote yourself to your God like Daniel, even amidst a modern day Babylon? This is the question before us. Judgment is coming. A king is returning. Will you quake in fear because in pride you failed to turn towards him and seek salvation? Or will you look to him in faith rejoicing as a bride on her wedding day at the thought of his coming? Because your sins have been forgiven. They've been washed clean because of his shed blood for you. Father, we are so thankful for Christ who comes. We are thankful for the story that paves the way, showing not only who you are and your righteous character, but but showing by negative example this king who does not prepare his people for judgment, and yet Christ the king who does prepare his people even by laying down his life. Oh, Father, may we look to him in faith. May we trust him with all of our being, that we might have the salvation you freely offer to all. It's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen.